Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man boast in his strength, and the rich man boast in his riches. But boast in this, that you would know this God that we have talked about. And I, I, I hope that we are awed by the fact that this Creator God has done what He has done, gone to this great length so that you and I can know Him now. And that knowing of Him is going to carry you through the, the trouble that you have right now. <clears throat> and He has something for you in the future that's as real as the podium is I'm standing on. We can know him. The ultimate reason you are here is to know God. Praise God for that. Turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to talk to you this morning about a theme. This is going to be different than what you're used to, to hearing. It's not an expository message as such. I hope it's accurate. I want to talk to you about how to, uh, how to cultivate a theology of suffering. I chose this topic for a number of reasons, <clears throat> and I chose Peter because I believe that he has written a very succinct, very powerful message on how to think and how to put on the mind of Christ and how to focus when you are in the middle of what you're in right now. There's not a person in this room that hasn't experienced some kind of difficulty in the last week. Is that true? Am I telling the truth? We live in a, a world that's not functioning the way it's going to function. We live in a world that's not functioning the way it was designed in the first place. However, the way it's functioning now is according to God's design right now, but we're broken. The world is broken and we suffer. Peter, with a pastor heart, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, writes a letter to the then churches of, of Turkey, sends it by uh, Sylvanus to a bunch of churches in Turkey. And as I understand the culture at that time, it, it wasn't quite to the level of persecution that was coming. Nero was in power. The persecution of the church had been going on since Stephen was martyred. But there were just pockets of persecution, different levels, very, very much like our culture. And Peter was writing, I believe, with a heart of compassion. He loved these people. He weeps with those who weeped. He, gr weep. he grieves for the people he loved. Why? Because they're hurting and he knows it. And he wants to help them. He wants to carry burdens. And he wants to prepare them not <clears throat> to handle the suffering that they're in right now. But he also wants to prepare them for what the Holy Spirit knows is coming. Nero's persecution did not surprise God. And so I believe this letter is written to prepare a church for a coming suffering. And Peter writes with a great passion and with very specific things to think and do in order to be prepared for this kind of suffering. Well, I, I picked this passage today for that very same reason. I believe as I watch the news and as I listen to what's happening in the world, I see Christians being marginalized. American Christians are paying a higher price right? Because we believe in this God we just have sung about. Is that true? It's costing us more. I want to challenge the American church to think about God's plan and why it is working this way so that we are not surprised. And Peter says that. We as a church need to be prepared for what's coming. But also, like I said, everybody in this room is hurting. 
in some fashion for some reason. And as I look at, at your faces, it hurts. And I also, uh, my desire is to help people who hurt. Uh, years ago, in the 80s and early 90s, Janelle and I went through a period of time where uh, we had a significant series of traumatic events in our lives. And we looked back, and, and uh, about every 9 to 12 months, something significant happened to us. And the, the culmination of that was in, a, in the last two years of that time span, we lost uh, my dad, her dad, a very su- su- a significant spiritual mentor of ours that we really looked up to, and a family member to suicide in the space of less than two years. My passion, as I look at you, is I want to challenge you to be thinking about how do you handle this, because I don't want you to do what I did. I nearly walked away from God. as I was a believer, had two, three little kids. I don't want you to do what I did, and I'm, I don't know this. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm guessing that when Peter writes this, he's thinking about the, the Friday morning, Good Friday. He's thinking, don't do what I did. Be ready for suffering. So I'm going to talk about themes, four themes that I see that play out in the book of 1 Peter that are relevant to cultivate a biblical theology of suffering so that when you're in the heat of the moment, you don't do what Peter did and you don't do what I did. I did. You stand firm, 1 Peter 5, 8, in the grace, 5, 12, in the grace of God. And that's, that's my passion. Peter writes this letter to, to believers who are suffering. So the message this morning is to believers. And if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ's perfect life to be your perfection, if you have not trusted yet in Jesus' blood sacrifice to pay for your sin debt, this message doesn't apply to you. But let me tell you this. It can, by the end of this message, you can trust Christ today and make his life yours and his blood sacrifice yours. I want to talk about 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, because I believe this verse takes the major portion of this letter and summarizes it in a very succinct sentence. So please stand with me as I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me read it again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Please pray with me. Father, we believe, we call upon you because you are our creator. We believe that you know us because you've made us. We know that you are faithful because you have demonstrated the greatest of faithfulness in giving us Jesus as our sacrifice, as a a redeemed and risen Lord, and we worship you because you are worthy. We call upon your name this morning that you would help us understand you better, that we would know you more fully, and that our lives would reflect the fact that we know and trust you. in a way that would give you great glory as we obey you in faith. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I chose this verse because it, it summarizes general themes. And that's what I want to camp on here. I want to talk to you about four themes. But before I get that, just to remind you, the audience is believers. 
the context is a life of suffering. And uh, he talks about, I can't, I don't, don't have enough time. I'd really like to unpack a lot more than I can today. But I want to give you some seeds of thought of how you can continue to pursue cultivating a theology of suffering by what we're going to talk about today. The word therefore in the text points back to the text ahead of this. And I want you to see the, the suffering context. Verse 12. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. Why? To test you. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but I, I love so much how God presents himself. He explains enough to us that we have reasons to believe him and reasons to respond to him, and he actually is warning us ahead of time. This is coming. Don't be surprised when a fiery trial tests you. It's coming, but it has a purpose. It's not a God. I, when I was going through my, my experience, I, I thought God was against me. And this is reminding us, no, 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 no. God is shaping and molding you in this test. Well, I want to start with an, a, a quick explanation of, of this verse in an overview. Because here's what, here's what I see happen. As people try to help people in the church, we often cut right to the chase and say, this is what you need to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Pray more. Fast more. Read more. Memorize more. We, get, we just start shooting people with Bible truths. Get it, get it, get it, get it, you know? And, and it discourages us, right? Sometimes when you are suffering, you're looking at God's word and you look at, you know what it says, and you say, yeah, I know that. I know that, but there's this question that nags in the back of my head. Yes, but how? Yes, I know, but I don't know how. Look at what he says. Remember, this is an explanation, a summary, after he has built the case for a theology of suffering, and this is the application. Look at what he says. Basically, he says this, trust God. Trust God, rely on God, do the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the results. Look at the text. Verse 19, let those who suffer, that's you, why, according to God's will, that's purpose, what do you do? Trust God, trust your souls to a faithful creator. Trust God while doing good, trust and obey, is, is really the, the way you can summarize this entire book, trust and obey when you suffer. Well, I know one thing, when I'm struggling and really hurting, and you come and sit down and say, you just need to trust God and obey, that doesn't do much for me. Does it you? Doesn't help much. So don't start here. Well, why am I starting here? Because I want to make the point. When someone is suffering, you don't start here. You've got to start all the way back at chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to do that. We're going to unpack four themes that help us get to a point where we can actually do this. Trust God, rely on him, do the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the results. Well, where do we start? Trust in God's identity. First part of your notes, trust in God's identity. Where am I going with this? And how do I get that out of the book and out of the text? Listen to what it says. First Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So the word entrust here is saying this. 
It is saying, it literally, it's a, it's a banking term. And it's referring to this idea that you take something valuable and you place it into the hands of someone who's trustworthy for safekeeping. So the literal, the literal uh, instruction here is, do you trust God enough to give yourself to him and will he keep you safe? And trust your soul to a faithful creator. The fr- you cannot do that unless you know who he is. And Peter has gone to great lengths to explain who God is in this text. And we're going to unpack more of that later. But let me just hit a couple in this particular verse. Entrusting, entrusting means to place your faith in completely. And by the way, uh, Peter, back up, chapter 1, verse 2. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 2, verse 23, and you're going to see what Jesus actually did. He actually did this exactly exact same thing. He demonstrates what this really looks like in real life. When he was persecuted, listen to what it says. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Kids, you know what this means? When somebody calls you names, when somebody makes your life miserable, uh, you don't fight back. When he was reviled, he did not fight back with the same kind of response. How in the world do you do that? I know you're not supposed to, but how? Husbands, when your wife, maybe she doesn't even say something to you. Maybe it's just, look at this. Maybe it's just, we communicate an awful lot like that, don't we? Am I telling the truth? When you're reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How did he do this? Answer, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see this word? Entrust. Entrust. Place your faith completely, your soul completely in a God who judges justly. And so often when we are suffering, we are suffering because some kind of an injustice, right? And the command here is to trust a God who's going to take care of the justice that you have coming. Trust him to do that. Don't jump into his place. Well, who's the God to whom you're going to trust? Peter says a faithful creator. <clears throat> a God who, whose suffering you have is according to his will. So now he's starting to unpack God's identity, saying he's, he's a creator, he's faithful, he's sovereign, he's orchestrating the path that you're on right now, the pain, the cancer, the death, the sorrow, the rejection, the lack of a job, the isolation, the depression, he's in control of that. And he, Peter says, take your soul and give it all to him. Reminds me of Indiana Jones, the great theologian, The Last Crusade. I've never seen the movie, so I probably shouldn't use the illustration. But it's a, if you YouTube, search on YouTube, it's a fantastic picture. At a counselee one time, I was telling him about this concept he was, his wife was leaving him. His life was falling apart. He was a, a very successful, very powerful man. But he would come in the office and he would sit and weep. We just would weep together. This poor man was hurting. Finally, one day, through his tears, he says, I know what you're trying to tell me. Indiana Jones. So I looked it up. Here's, here's the picture. Indiana Jones comes to the edge of this abyss. He's got a bottomless pit. He's got a cross. He's got to get to the other side. And there is absolutely no way to get there. Remember that? And he looks at his instructions. 
And it says, in trust, step in faith. Try this. Right now watch. He goes like this, and he steps into this abyss. And just like my foot, his foot stops, and a bridge forms that he could not see. That's what Peter is telling us in this text, is to say, step out in faith. You're not trusting some uh, uh, story, trusting in the identity of a God who knew you before he created the world. His voice is so powerful, he speaks into nothing. And what? It becomes what? Organized beauty that's incredible. Can you trust him with your soul as you suffer? That's the command of Peter. Now, what's it look like when, when we don't do that? Think, think with me a minute. What happens when we don't trust God as creator, as being faithful? How about, is there a need for you to fuss and worry about tomorrow? If the God who created your tomorrow is already there. See, our measure of entrustment here is measured in worry, in fear, in regret. You look back. How about the what-ifs and the if-onlys that you weep over? If only, if only, if only. What good does that do? And was the creator God that was faithful? Was he with you when you were taking left-hand turns years ago? Praise God he was. And praise God he redeems. Are you fussing over the injustice, the unfairness of life? If so, perhaps you need to think about the first pillar, if you will, of a theology of suffering. And that is a pillar of a commitment to say, I will entrust my soul and everything about me to God who never fails because I know him. Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your strength. Boast that you know the Lord. There's so much more to talk about in this character of God, the identity of God. And we're going to unpack some more of it. But I want you to see how our understanding of God's identity is directly linked to our understanding of point number two here, of our understanding of my identity. The second pillar, if you will, of cultivating a theology of suffering is you must come to grips with, meditate on, know, embrace, understand, and submit to the truth about what the God creator, the creator God who saved you says about your identity. Who does he say you are? That's what's critical. And what happens to most of us, many of us, is our emotions, our experience in the past, the voices of the past define and shape and form our view of who we are. And Peter says right off the bat when he writes this letter, he starts with your identity. He explains who you are. And makes it very clear. And I believe he's doing this for a reason. Because knowing who you are in relation to the God who you are trusting is absolutely vital for you to understand how to respond in a way that pleases God when you're suffering. Look at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now here's the address to you. Now this is the you part of... 1 Peter 4.19, the you part. We talked about God. Now, this is about you. Who are you according to God? If you are a believer 
if you trust in Christ for your, for your salvation and if you've trusted in his life for your perfection, this is who you are. Elect. Chosen. Exiles. Just camp on that for a second. What does it mean to be elect or chosen? Think about this. What an incredible truth of God's word. Peter starts out by saying, this foreknowing God, this all-knowing God, this creator God, before he ever created the, the world, knew you and made a choice to choose you to become part of his family and, to, and to, to, with all of his effort, if you can say that, save you. That's what this word elect means. I've been picked. <clears throat> not because of who I am or what I do, or not because of God's foreknowledge of what I might choose. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with God's character. That's why it's so important that you understand God's identity and how it's linked to your identity. He says, we are elect, we're exiles. What that is saying is not, we're politi- we're not political exiles. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is people like you and me have lived 10, 20, 30, maybe 50 years in one place. We're still exiles. What's his point? His point is you are living in a temporary location. This is not a permanent place. And God is calling us to this eternal focus. Know who you are. You're just here. You're just passing through. And don't get too wound up in what's happening in today because tomorrow is what we're living for. The glory of God is what we're living for. He goes on to say, say this, how, how did I become who I am? Listen to what he says. Jan- Daniel talked about this last week. He talked about the, the triune God being involved. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is involved in your election, in your salvation, in your sanctification, and in your spiritual growth. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they all, you can say they, you can't, he is involved in your identity. What's he say about you? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling of his blood, with his blood, your identity is bound up in God's identity and what God has done for you, and it's a past, present, future identity. Past tense, saved, foreknown and saved, elect. Present tense, well, past tense would be, I've been saved. This is a past tense salvation. Present tense is, I am, I am called to obey Christ and the sprinkling of blood. Think about this. Peter, as he does throughout this entire book, keeps hearkening back to the Old Testament uh, ideas. And he's teaching here that sprinkling of the blood, look at this. He is saying that as you live your life, the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ continues to cleanse you from all sin, 1 John 1. And you say, well, you don't know what, where I was last night on the Internet. You don't know what I did last week in response to my spouse's sin. You don't know what I did last week on my school test. What we see here in our identity is the work of God in sanctification and ongoing progressive sanctification is not affected by what we think and what we do. It's a work of God. We're chosen, we're elect, past, present, and future. Look at verse 5. Let me just read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again. Another identity. You're a born again person. How? Because God decided that you would be born again. We celebrated two births this week. Silas, Joseph, Grimm, <clears throat> uh, to Paul and Elise, and uh, Rodney and Stacy just had the Haley Joe. What a great, what a great week. And last week we celebrated Davine's graduation. Another great week. Hard, but great. God tells us here that just like a child is born by the choice of someone apart from themselves, when you become a believer, you are born again because God decided to born you again. Bad English, great theology. We need to understand who we are and camp on it. We want to argue. I hear this often. You, you read something in God's Word that tells someone something that God says about themselves, and what do you hear? Two words. Well, there's a setup. I know that's what God says. Yes, but I'm different. I'm too bad. I'm unsavable. I'm unlovable. I'm worthless. Maybe, you've, maybe the voice that you've heard from your parents or your relatives are still echoing, still echoing. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And what the Bible says about my identity is radically different than the voices of your past. And we must trust what God says and embrace what God says and literally bow the knee to the truth of what God says and accept it to be true. <clears throat> imagine imagine a, uh, a bridegroom standing at the front of the church in his wedding day. The, the party has all come up on the stage. Everybody's in place. The music has stopped. And the doors at the back of the church open up. And the light from the foyer just gushes, glows in, and he sees this beautiful form of this woman that he has fallen madly in love with. He cannot wait to begin life with. But just before the music starts and she takes a step, life goes on pause. And a DVD of uh, time-lapse photography starts to roll in his mind. And he looks forward 50 years. And he sees rejection, selfishness, anger, bitterness, hatred, unfaithfulness, adultery, betrayal, 50 years of it. But in God's economy, when our identity is chosen before the foundation of the world, you know what? That bridegroom looks at her and his love for her, look at this, goes this way. His passion for her goes this way as he looks through the sin and says, I want you anyway. That's what it means to trust the identity that God says about you, who you are. Imagine, God knows everything about you. He knows all the sins you're going to commit. And he says, I still want you. And I'm going to choose you, not because of your sin. I'm choosing you because I choose to love you. Deuteronomy 6 or 7, it says, I love you because I love you. Typical parental statement. Mommy, why do you love me? Because. But why? Because. But why? Because I love you. That's Deuteronomy 7. And that's the God in whom we are called to place our faith. 
point number three, third pillar of cultivating, uh, cultivating a theology of suffering that I believe that comes from 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, is this, that we are to trust in God's eternal purposes. <clears throat> we must choose to trust in God's eternal purposes. God tells us in this, in this letter that we are to hope in God. Put your hope in God. How in the world can you find hope if you don't know why, what, why you're going through what you're going through? God graciously explains why we suffer. Often people say, I don't understand why. And I did that for 12 years. I could not understand why. Why did I not understand why? Because I did not know what I know now about God's identity. I had no idea how glorious, how amazing, how gracious, and how sovereign he was. I still don't have much of a clue that I'm growing in my understanding. I certainly did not know what God had said about my identity, and I wasn't aware that the scripture was so full of instruction of what God is up to in his eternal purposes. And that's what I'm excited to talk about right now. Look at chapter 4, <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, why? According to God's will. I believe Peter has gone to uh, a significant great length to explain God's eternal purposes in this letter. Let's go back to uh, chapter 2. According to God's purpose. And I would encourage you to go through, what I did is I printed out the, the, the book of 1 Peter and I color-coded these four things. Uh, and this, the, the Word document is just loaded with color. I picked the color for what the, the scriptures talk about in terms of God's identity, who he is. I picked another color for uh, who I am, what God has to say about my identity, our identity as, uh, as believers. And then I picked the color for God's eternal purposes. And I read, I've been through it I don't know how many times, and every time I see something new that God is up to. But look at chapter 2, verse 9. What is God's eternal purpose for you? 2.9. This also has to do with identity. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Can you imagine a God who can make something out of nothing, who knows everything, that has creative power that speaks and the world jumps into existence, says, I want you. I want you. We have a lot of do adoptions here in our, in our community. Think about that. That God says, I'm choosing you, knowing all the sins about you. So why would he do that? Answer, that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You want to know why you're suffering? You want to know why you're alive? Are you to the point where you're questioning maybe the world would be better without you? Maybe you've been told the world would be better without you. I had an experience talking to one uh, young man years and years ago. Uh, he, his dad, would stand him and his family, his two siblings and his mom, they would stand like this with their feet together in a straight line and his dad would load a gun and shoot it into the ground between his legs. This guy was not convinced that he was worth living. Life was worth li living. Talk about suffering. But God gathers up the broken, and he says, I want to choose you, and I have a purpose for you. And your purpose in your brokenness is to proclaim my 
excellency. I, I just, that blows my mind. Why would he ask me to speak for him? But he does. And he's, that is your eternal purpose if your identity is elect, chosen, sojourner. What else does he choose you for? Verse, chapter 1, verse 3. What is he up to? To born you again for salvation. He wants to save you. Why does he want to save you? He wants to, you to be with him in eternity. He's got an eternal purpose for you. So often we get stuck in the, in the here and now. We only see what's in front of us. And uh, sometimes when we say, well, look to eternity, it doesn't really excite us too much because it's so far away. Well, trust me, if you asked Davine this two weeks ago, she would have told you that 88 years went by an awfully, an awfully fast. Look to the eternal purposes of God, and that, that will solidify our ability to stand under uh, suffering. And Peter knows that. What else does he say about us? He says that we are to, verse 7, 1, 7, he's testing the genuineness of our faith. Why? So it can be found to the praise and glory and honor of him. He's testing us. There's another purpose here. Testing, this whole idea of testing. What is that about? The imagery of a fiery trial or the testing is, is a refiner's fire with, with uh, metal. Elizabeth Elliot tells the story of watching a man in a third world country sitting around a fire with a pot. And he, would, he was straddling the pot. He just kept staring into it. And for several minutes, he would not move, just stare into the pot. And once in a while, he would dip a ladle into the pot and do this. And minutes later, he would do it again. She asked him, what are you doing? She said, I'm looking into the surface. He was refining silver. I'm looking into the surface of the liquid. And whenever I see an impurity, my face is distorted. And I take it out. And that's exactly, kids, that's exactly what God is doing when your schoolwork doesn't go well, when your kids make fun of you, moms and dads, when things just don't go right. What is God doing? He's turning up the heat to refine us. So when he looks at us, he sees him and not imperfection. That's fiery trial. That's a purpose. I used to think that suffering was something that God did just playing chess games with Satan for, his, for grins and giggles. What a horrible view of God. And God says, no, I have eternal purposes that are not only for my glory, not only to make you more like, my, like Christ, but Romans 8.28 says what? For your good. This is all for your good as well, even though it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. As we look at trusting in the character of God, the nature of God, God's identity, as we camp on what God says about our identity and then as we cling to and embrace the eternal purposes God has explained in our suffering, we are far more equipped by the grace of God to trust God and obey Him by doing the right thing for the right reason, regardless of, of the results. Which brings us to the last uh, point in your, in your handout. Trusting God's eternal pur uh, purposes for me specifically. God's very clear about what we need to do specifically. Oftentimes people say, yeah, I know the big picture. Yeah, 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 I get all that. But I don't know what to do specifically. Well, he doesn't leave us without specific direction. 
1 Peter 4 says, trust God while doing good. Well, what's the good he's wanting me to do? Thomas Brooks, uh, this is a Puritan years ago, said this, the humble soul endeavors more how to glorify God in afflictions than how to get out of them. So the goal here is to obey God in the middle of suffering. You know, we just walked through a gym. This is a, uh, a temple, if you will, erected for the purpose of suffering. Is that not true? The other night I was up here on a treadmill and uh, the fan was on and the guy next to me says, you mind if I turn the fan off? And uh, I said, whatever you want to do is fine with me. He says, I came here to sweat. And he says, if you didn't come here to sweat, get out of here. <laughs> well, that I believe is the call of the believer just to choose to sweat, if you will, to serve God even when it hurts. And God tells us how to do it. What does he say? Well, chapter 1, verse 5, who got by God's power are being guarded for the last time. He says, <clears throat> uh, actually, it's verse 15. He calls us to be holy. Verse 14, he says, don't be conformed to the world. Verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. Cultivating a theology of suffering starts with the thinking. Prepare your minds. Get your mind going. So, Literally, trusting and obeying is a, to me, is a four-syllable word, one word. Trust and obey is a singular, connected idea. They're not separate. Trusting is an act of obedience. Thinking is an act of obedience. And thinking specifically about what God calls us to do is very, very critical. And Peter spends a lot of time with it. Fear God. Be holy. Be sober-minded. I mean, I'm chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Verse 18, know. There's a, this mind thing again. Knowing who you are. You're ransomed. There's another identity kind of thing. Over and over, he tells us what to do. In fact, he gets so specific about suffering. Listen to this. He tells the citizen in chapter 2, verse 12, he tells the citizen how to react with his authority. In government, chapter 2, verse 18, he tells the slave, the servant, the employee how to walk and please God, how to do the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the results, as he works for his boss. And then he says, you do this because to, listen, to this you have been called. What is the this part? Suffer. Told that to one uh, gentleman whose wife was leaving him. His heart was broken. And we read this passage in Second Peter. And you know what he did? He did this. I did not sign up for this. But Peter says, no, you did. When you, you come into the family of God, to this you have been called. What have you been called to? To suffer. And right after that, chapter 3, verse 1, you know what he says? Likewise, wives. Now, men, that's not very complimentary. When God has to tell our wives to live with us as they suffer and shame on us when we make it that way, but the command, likewise, is tied back to living like Christ when you suffer. Chapter 3, verse 7, husbands, likewise, in the same way that Christ suffered, live with your wives, and if you don't, your prayers are hindered. The book of 1 Peter is loaded with specific things to do so we know how to, how to apply chapter 4, verse 17, back to the text. Chapter 4, verse 17, or 19, let, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does that look like? And why should I do it? Listen. You have an inheritance. If you are a believer, forward. You have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's got your name on it. All you have to do is graduate like Davine did, and it's all yours in the presence of God. If you believe that, if you believe who God is, if you believe and understand who you are, if you see God's eternal purpose, and if you plod along doing good, you're going to find not only joy in the journey, you're going to glorify God in ways that are just stunning. Let me give you an example, and I'll close. True story. Uh, I just told this uh, last week. In fact, I'll spare you the details. Godly man marries a woman. They're married for a, a short period of time. They have two babies real quick in life. Third baby comes, and that baby is born and is obviously a different ethnicity than both, uh, both the members of the, of the marriage. Husband realizes his wife has been unfaithful. Can you imagine? Godly man. He trusts in God's identity. He knows who he is, and he knows why he's here. He chooses to love that little baby and adopts that baby and loves that baby as his own. Continues to love his wife. She delivers a fourth child. Oh, two children. She had twins. Same, same deal. Different ethnicity. Unfaithful again. He continues to love his wife. Suffering for the sake of Christ. Adopts those kids. One of them with special needs. Years go by. She finally leaves him and takes the kids and abandons him. He remarries a godly woman. What is this man doing? He is committed to trusting and obeying, doing the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the result. Years go by. Her, her life falls apart. He takes these two ki three kids back, brings them into his house. His second wife loves those kids like her own, doing the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the outcome. Guess what? The original mom is saved because of the way they demonstrated the love of Jesus Christ. And later on, the second wife cares for the first wife as she declines in health. That is the glory of God. And that's what it looks like when we have a theology of suffering and we respond in a way where we trust and obey and do the right thing for the right reason, regardless of the result. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us and you've made it very clear that you're a God worthy of our love, respect, and worship and awe. We pray that you would help us in our lives uh, respond in a way that uh, gives glory to your name, that reflects your character well, and that uh, uh, encourages others to come and seek Jesus and to know you as a Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.